listening to Nightlight. Hi, and welcome to Nightlight. Always nice to spend this time with you. Well, this week, I want to introduce you to another very deep and weighty and inspired 19th century Christian writer, B.W. Newton. He lived from 1807 to 1899. A few years ago, somebody very kindly sent me a collection of B.W. Newton's books, which are mostly expositions on end-time Bible prophecy. And I was thrilled to find his teachings on the end-time and the millennium matched with most of what I've been taught on those topics over the years. These were written about 150 years ago, and yet are still so on point they could have been written today. A lot of Newton's writings are very theological, contain a lot of footnotes and cross-references, so it's been hard to select chapters that would lend themselves well to listening to in audiobook format. But I'm going to give it a try, and over the coming weeks I'll be recording some of his key teachings on the millennium and the events that lead up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But on this show... As a general introduction to the writings of B.W. Newton, I'm going to share with you a chapter called The Rechabites, in which he traces the history of the Rechabites in the Old Testament and shows how, after all those years, they remain true to their calling of being a separated people. In these last days, we know that the Lord is calling his church, his bride, more than ever, to separate themselves from the world as we prepare to meet our bridegroom when he comes. The Rechabites, A Separate People by B.W. Newton The people of the Lord are ever marked as being a separate people. Carry your mind back to the beginning and trace the history of God's people throughout the scriptures. Think of Abel and Enoch and Noah, God's earliest witnesses. Think of Moses in Egypt, of David in Saul's household, of Elijah and Jeremiah in the midst of the corruptions of Israel, of the Son of God himself and of his apostles, down to the hour when the scripture closes with John, a prisoner at Patmos did not separation, and as a consequence, rejection, mark the place of them all. And when you think of the picture which the apostles prophetically drew of the corruptions which were to mark the close of professing Christianity among the Gentiles, those corruptions in the midst of which we at present live, is it or is it not needful to be separate in the midst of a scene like this? Ought we to be within the gate of man's city, or without it? I'm sure your consciences will say, without it, without the gate, bearing his reproach. But whence does the power of such separation come, from God or from ourselves? Shall we look to God for it, or shall we trust our own resolutions and devisings? Surely it is not an easy thing. God only can give it, give it as one of his most precious gifts. 
See how this was recognized by the Lord Jesus in his closing prayer over his disciples as recorded in the 17th chapter of John. After praying for their heavenly union and their everlasting blessedness in the heavens, he prays for the maintenance of their separation in earth. Sanctify them through thy truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil, that they might be my witnesses, separate to my truth, my service, my testimonies, in the midst of a world in which Satan rules. Such was the purport of the prayer of the Lord Jesus. It sufficiently teaches us the unspeakable value of separation. It teaches us whence alone the power of such separation can come. It teaches us how the practical separation of the people of Christ is ever kept as an object before the mind of the Father and the Son. And in reading the scripture, how honorable the mention of all who in any age or any dispensation were privileged to hold this place of separation. The Rechabites were one company of these separated ones. It is one of the few bright lines of light that illumine the dark page of human history. It is interesting and instructive to trace the history of the family of the Rechabites in Scripture. They sprang from a people called the Kenites. The Kenites are first mentioned when God enumerates to Abraham the nations who were to fill up the cup of their iniquity and to be extirpated by Israel when the time should come for Israel to enter on their land. The Kenites stand out first in the list of nations thus marked out as the objects of the wrath and of the curse of God. The Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Kadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Genesis 15, verse 19. Again, in Numbers 24, when Balaam prophesied to advertise Balak what should befall his people in the latter days, he looked on the Kenites and took up his parable and said, Strong is thy dwelling place, and thou puttest thy nest in a rock. Nevertheless, the Kenites shall be wasted, until Asher shall carry thee away captive. And he took up his parable and said, Alas, who shall live when God doeth this? Here therefore again, they're mentioned as a proud and evil people to be given over to judgment at the last. Yet out of this people, it was that grace caused this righteous remnant, the Rechabites, to come. The first of this family of whom we read was Jethro. Jethro was he who received the outcast Moses when, hated by Egypt and spurned by Israel, that servant of God sought refuge in the wilderness. Moses had loved God's people simply because they were God's people even when they were in their lowest state, when there was nothing save sorrow and misery and oppression to commend them to his love. He loved them, 
and by his deeds proved his love to them, and thereby lost everything. Not a heart in Israel, much less in Egypt, owned him. He fled into the wilderness a lonely outcast, but there this Kenite, Jethro, met him, welcomed him, received him into his dwelling, and cherished him, and it brought to his house a blessing. There is ever a blessing in owning and receiving and welcoming the outcast truth or its servants. If there be one thing that the Lord will surely remember now and in the day of his glory, it is that. In Jethro, then, the protector of the rejected Moses, we find the origin of the separated and honored Rechabites. Years rolled away. Patience of faith was exercised, until at last Moses was suddenly called by God to the headship of Israel his people. And when the house of bondage had been left, and the hour of Egypt's judgment escaped, and the Red Sea passed, and they entered into the wilderness to find there the succors and guidance of God, and when they rested there in peace, then again we read of Jethro coming to behold their joy and to rejoice with them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who hath delivered you out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly he was above them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came, and all the elders of Israel, to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Exodus chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. There have always been occasional periods in the history of God's people when he has been pleased to interfere on their behalf and to give them an increased measure of strength and blessing. There are occasions even now when he is pleased to put forth his reviving hand and to open afresh the choked channels of the fountains of his truth and to cause its streams to be diffused with wider scope of blessing. Such seasons ought to be duly recognized it is meet and right to recognize them and to give God thanks. It is true, indeed, that the light may again wane and the joy depart. We must always expect everything that is blessed to wane here until the great hour of the accomplished glory of Jesus comes, and then there will be waning no more. Then all who have the spirit of Jethro shall come and rejoice over the goodness with which God has visited his people and say with unfaltering lip, His goodness endureth forever. Whenever we see, therefore, any increase of blessing or any revived blessing amongst the people of God, let it remind our faith of that coming hour when all fullness of blessing will be given never more to depart the great and everlasting jubilee 
of the Israel of God. A little while after, we again read of Jethro and his household. It was whilst Israel were toiling on through the wilderness, and it was a question whether this Kenite family of faith should leave Moses and retire, or whether they should abide and share the destinies of Israel. Moses said, Nay, go not away. We are in the midst of a wilderness. Help us, be to us for eyes. That is, we are going outward through dangers and difficulties and sorrows to the land of our rest, guided by whom? By the Lord God of hosts. He it is whose ark goeth forth at our head to search out a resting place for us. And then, as he appoints a place for us, we need observantly to watch every token. We need eyes. We need to see where the power of the enemy is. We need to observe what is the order that he appoints to our hosts day by day. We need eyes to discern the good, eyes to eschew the evil. Wilt thou be as eyes to us and help us? See, here is a blessed opportunity for all who desire to be servants of God's truth. Truth still tarries in the wilderness. It still dwells, as it were, in tents. It still migrates. It is not stationary. When its light wanes or is extinguished in one place, we have to follow it where it may be kindled in the midst of new circumstances in another, till the great hour for the everlasting establishment of truth is come. It is the place of the family of faith, of all who are without the gate, to dwell like the Rechabites, in tents. For here we have no continuing city. Therefore we still need eyes. We need wariness and watchfulness. We need quick discernment to see where the path of truth and of honor is. Sometimes the being told to watch calls up in us a thought of sorrow. The sense of the painfulness connected with watching predominates. On the other hand, it may be a thought of joy and blessing, for it may be watching for opportunities to display the banners of the Lord, to assail the citadels of the foe, to advance the standards of Israel, or to lead into places of quiet rest where there are pastures and palm trees and wells of water. Of one thing we may be very sure, that it is by adherence to the suffering truth and the suffering servants of God that we find opportunity for using any power that may have been given us of holy intelligence and discrimination, any power that may be as eyes to discern that which may be for the encouragement or comfort or guidance of the people of God. The words of Moses were heard, the place of honor accepted. And Hobab did abide with Israel. And thus his family became abidingly connected with Israel's triumphs and with Israel's woes. Years again rolled on, and we find Israel quitting the wilderness 
and entering their land. But the land was full of enemies. Under Joshua they received part of it indeed, but there were struggles still. And here again we read of this little faithful remnant. We read of them as quitting their city, called the City of Palm Trees, and coming into the wilderness of Judah. Just one verse tells us this. And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lieth in the south of Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. Judges chapter 1, verse 16. How characteristic this. They might have dwelt if they had pleased in their city, for it was in the land, within the confines of Israel's inheritance. It was no unholy place of sojourn. It was a place, too, of beauty and repose. Palm trees stand contrasted with the wilderness, the waste and arid wilderness, as an emblem of pleasantness and rest. Yet this family of faith, having weighed the value of this city of rest and compared it with the value of adherence to the people of God, wavered not in their resolve. They preferred to be with God's people and so went into the wilderness of Judah. It was this step that led to that place of honor which the Rechabites subsequently held. It would have been happy indeed if Israel had so advanced in straightforward paths of holy obedience to their God as to draw others on with them to peace and blessing. But it was far otherwise. Israel grievously trespassed, and the deserved chastisement came. Their enemies, who once trembled at their presence, were allowed to be exalted over them. They were despoiled of the land of their inheritance. Its field and its vineyards, its wells and its pleasant ways, they dared not approach. They stood stripped of all that once characterized them as Israel. They trembled where they had been wont to triumph, and they wept in the midst of the land of their blessing. Such was the condition of Israel when Deborah arose. You remember the era of Deborah, what distress there was in Israel. They were trampled down by their enemies. They were despoiled of the goodness of their land. They had neither vineyards, nor wells of water, nor anything that could comfort or cheer them. The power of the enemy had swept their peace, their dignity, and their comfort all away. See Judges chapter 5. And here, let us not forget that the things that happened unto them happened unto them for in samples, in samples unto us. Is the present a day when the people of God are enjoying their privileges and feasting unitedly and peacefully on the fat things which have been provided as their portion? Or are they like a scattered flock, feeding on fouled pastures, and drinking oft of troubled, or it may be of poisoned waters? Think not merely of Christendom, but of the true people of God in the midst of Christendom, and say whether the proud and cruel foe is not tyrannizing over them in the power of deception and falsehood. 
How has he succeeded in hindering, if not in preventing access to many a refreshing wellspring of truth? To many a pleasant garden where plants of heavenly fragrance might be cultivated? To many a quiet resting place where the flock might rest at noon? How many a stronghold of falsehood has he reared? How many a victim has he entangled in his snares? But through Deborah, a new era of blessing dawned on Israel. First, by the quiet ministration of the truths of God when seated under the palm tree, she ministered truth and judgment to all who came to her from the tribes of Israel. No doubt the eye of the stranger scorned her and her ministration. They knew not the blessing that ever attaches to the ministration of God's truth. Power, however, as well as blessing, was really there. And when the proper time came, Deborah was able to call forth Israel into the place of energetic service against the foe. Israel had long heard the words of truth from her lips. They were prepared, therefore, for the summons. They obeyed it, and they triumphed. But in that day of victory, to whom was the honor given of striking the blow that sealed the conquest of Israel by destroying the great captain of their oppressors? That honor was not given to one of the tribes of Israel, but to one of the stranger Kenites who were dwelling in the midst of Israel. It was Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, who smote the great oppressor. Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. At her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. But let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might. From the eleventh verse of the fourth of Judges, it would appear that this family of Heber the Kenite, to which Jael belonged, had separated itself even from the rest of the separated Kenites. There was no doubt some wise reason for this double separation of Heber's household. Probably the rest of the Kenites had begun to settle down, seeking rest before the proper time of rest had come. The children of Jethro, therefore, were found in a peculiarly separate place. And from this doubly separated family came strength to give the blow, strength to be manifestly with the Lord against his enemies. I scarcely need say that we are not now permitted, much less required, to give any outward blow. We are to use no sword save the sword of the Spirit, our feet are ever to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Yet, there is such a thing as moral warfare. The children of faith are called to be spiritual soldiers, warriors rallying around the banner of truth and setting their faces as flints against certain things and persons whose ways must bring on them judgment at the last, even judgment without mercy. There are persons who, under Satan, the god of this world, form the manners of the age and give to it its character. 
The world, secularly and ecclesiastically, has its leaders. Is the testimony that is to be borne against the world and its evil to be less firm, less decided than the feeling which nerved the hand of jail when God required it to give the outward blow of destruction to the oppressor of his people? She did what she did for and unto God. She was appointed to prefigure the unsparing vengeance of that hour when the way of the wicked will be recompensed upon their own head. Have any deceived others? God can appoint deception to them. Have any mocked at others? God can mock at them. Have any put forth the power of destruction against others? God can put forth the power of destruction against them. What Sisera had done to others was requited to himself again, and Jael was but the instrument employed of God to inflict the well-merited recompense. The principles of falsehood we are to spare not. There is a holy energy, a holy severity that is acceptable to God. The Apostle Paul well knew that the character of the hour at which he ministered required that he should be no less separate than Jeremiah, no less careful to separate the precious from the vile. I would, said he, that they were even cut off which trouble you. Yet, though stern against incorrigible transgressors, he did not on that account forget that he had also to minister the gospel of the grace of God. There was yet another period when under Ahab the corruption of Israel became so great that the worship of Baal had supplanted, indeed as far as the eye of man could see, thoroughly supplanted the worship of Jehovah. You remember the sorrowful path of Elijah and Elisha in the midst of these corruptions. And when at last the hand of Jehu was called forth by the God of Israel to give the destructive blow to Ahab's house as Jehu was proceeding on his mission of judgment, one of this separated Kenite family, Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, met him. 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 15. And Jehu said, Is thine heart right as my heart is with thy heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. And he bid him come up into the chariot. Thus Jehonadab was associated with the appointed avenger and with his work. We have before seen the separated Kenite acting with God and with God's servants against the external foes of God's people. And now, when the evil was within Israel itself, the judgment was directed against Israel's royal house, we still find the Kenite true to God and associating himself with the person whom God had called forth and appointed to execute his will. May we in this also remember the place of the Kenite. The hour of Jehu does but typify another yet future hour when the true avenger appointed of God to execute vengeance on all the corruptions of Israel and of the earth, shall come forth in the chariots of his might, traveling in the greatness of his strength. There is no other relation which the Lion of the tribe of Judah can finally bear 
towards all unrepented of and unpardoned corruption. He has already, even during this day of long-suffering grace, forewarned us of his final relation towards all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Are then our hearts with his? Shall he say, Is thy heart right, as my heart is with thy heart? And shall we answer, Yea? There should be no hesitancy in the reply of God's separated people as to this. And when they are rightly and wisely separate, there will be none. Jehonadab was thus separate. We may look upon him as embodying all the principles of holy Kenite separation from the days of Jethro downward. Attracted to the people of God because they were his people, rejoicing with them in the day of their gladness and not forsaking them in the day of their adversity, associated with God when his hand was raised against all his people's enemies and equally associated with him when his hand was raised against his people's own corruptions. Such was the Kenite. Such was Jehonadab. May it not be otherwise with you. The hour of separate Jeremiah-like testimony is not over yet. Never was there an hour that required more that the face should be set as a flint, that the precious should be separated from the vile, that the voice of holy testimony should be heard against peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Think of the place assigned to John in Patmos. He was commanded to eat the sweet but yet bitter book of prophecy. Bitter in result. Bitter when the knowledge it communicated had been so digested and incorporated as to give a character to every feeling and thought and testimony. John was commanded to eat this bitter book and then was commissioned again to prophesy against peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Yet who was more gentle than John? Who more full of the testimony of grace? Who more ready to receive any who should turn from their evil ways? The Holy Spirit is the power of the combination of truth. It enables us to remember Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, whilst we also know him as the Lamb. Diverse thoughts yet how necessary to be combined. The hour when the lion's strength of the Redeemer of Israel is to be manifested in the appointed work of vengeance is indeed not yet come. Yet faith remembers what is written respecting it and therefore waits, waits in separation. Nor is lion-like strength unneeded and unknown by God's servants even whilst carrying on their present testimony of grace. Did not John need such strength to enable him to stand firm in his testimony against the nations? Did not Stephen need it when he said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears? Yet the spirit of Jesus as the Lamb was also there. For he added, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge.
to return to the history of the Kenites. Years again rolled away, and we hear nothing more of this faithful family until the days of Jeremiah. The corruptions of Israel and of Jerusalem had steadily increased, and the long night of Israel's sorrow was drawing nigh when we again find the Kenite family mentioned under the name House of the Rechabites, for they were descended from Jonadab, the son of Rechab. The true pilgrim character of that honored servant of the Lord, his sense of the prevailing evil and the strength of his conviction that it was no time for seeking to rest or to rejoice in anything that the earth could afford, was marked by his solemn charge to his posterity. Jonadab the son of Rechab our father and the Rechabites commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons for ever, neither shall ye build house or sow seed or plant vineyard, nor have any, but all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Strangership and separation from all joy that is merely of the earth, for such is the joy that wine here signifies, was thus the place which the last remnant of the Kenite family typically held. And they had kept the commandment which had been given them. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab our father, in all that he has charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed. But we have dwelt in tents, and have obeyed, and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But it came to pass, when Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land, that we said, Come, and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans, and for fear of the army of the Syrians, so we dwell at Jerusalem. Thus neither the dread of Nebuchadrezzar nor the afflictions of Israel had made them swerve from their twofold purpose. First, to cleave to the land of Israel, for in that they were to be strangers. Secondly, to maintain their own peculiar place of separateness within. Jeremiah set wine before them in vain. They would not drink. God knew that they would not drink. He did it only to prove them, only to manifest their faith and their obedience, and to set them in honored contrast with his own backsliding people. The Rechabites well understood that whatever might be the path of others, their path was plainly marked by the commandment of Jonadab their father, a commandment which they knew to have the sanction of God. Not even the invitation of Jeremiah, though perhaps it seemed to them strange and inexplicable, caused them to waver. They found the rule of their conduct, not in that which they understood not, but in that which they understood. Their understanding recognized that the commandment which they had obeyed had been surely given. Their conscience attested its excellency, and when the understanding and conscience concur, little doubt remains as to the path. What though the wondrous providence of God had placed Moses in Pharaoh's household and made him great and prosperous there? 
did that influence him? No. As soon as his understanding and conscience clearly recognized that it was better, that it was the path of faith to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to abide where he was, he renounced all that providence had given him in Pharaoh's house and cast in his lot with God's suffering people. The heart wavers not where the eye is single. Otherwise, hindrance may be found in everything. And the heart knows well how to employ its sophistry in defending its unfaithfulness. But it was not so with the Rechabites. They resisted even Jeremiah and boldly said, We will drink no wine. They had long had certain fixed, ascertained principles of conduct, and to them they adhered. May they be an example to us. The separate path of the Rechabites was by them regarded as their honor and their joy. They looked on it as their heritage. Are there no similar commandments which may be regarded as our heritage? Are we not commanded to beware of the wine of this world's joy? There is a wine which the corrupt nature of man delights in. We read of a vine of the earth whose clusters are to be cast into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 16. We read of a vine which is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah, whose grapes are grapes of gall, whose wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Deuteronomy 32, verse 32. We read of a cup which the harlot of Babylon mingles. But there is also another wine, new wine, joys which are of the kingdom of God, joys which pertain to the new creation, having their source not in the first Adam who has fallen, but in the second man, the last Adam who liveth for evermore. Are we able to draw the distinction between these two cups? And which do we love? Which do we drink? The old wine or the new? Naturally, we drink of the old. We love it and are satisfied with it. No man having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith the old is better. May we through grace ever say, the old is not better. We will not seek it. We will seek to drink of the new. We will seek our joys in the things that are of the new wine, of the new creation of God. May we shun that old wine of which they who habitually drink have no desire, no relish for the new. Again, is it not another part of our heritage to dwell, as it were, in tents outside the city of man, saying, Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come? The place of the Rechabites as dwelling in tents was virtually the place which Israel once occupied when in Egypt they stood to eat the Passover in haste, their shoes on their feet, their staves in their hands. Nor is the time yet come for the sandals to be put off or for the staves to be laid aside. There is still to be, as it were, a dwelling in tents. 
and so it will continue to be, until the hour shall at last come when it shall be said, The sovereignty of the world hath become the sovereignty of our Lord and of his Christ. Then there will be rest, settlement, establishment for the servants of the truth, both in outward things and in spiritual things. Prosperity and peace shall attend their goings. The time for the rest of truth will have come when, to use the typical language of Scripture, the ark of the Lord will rest and be manifested as resting between the cherubim, its staves drawn in, in token that it journeys no longer. But it is otherwise now. Now is the day of man. Now the city of man flourishes, and the children of the kingdom are called without the gate, bearing the reproach of Jesus. Such is the character of our calling. May we prize it, may we cleave to its principles. Then, in our measure, we shall be as the Rechabites. And even if the threatening power of the world waxes greater, and even if they who profess the name of Christ become weaker like Israel before the king of Babylon, yet praise and blessing, like that which rested on the separate Rechabites, will in measure be our portion. The principles and habits of the children of faith should, in such a day as this, be markedly contrasted with the tenor of everything around. What practical power would there be in truth unless it separated thus? Are we ready to own this? Do our hearts mourn that this practical power of truth is developed so feebly? We may well mourn, yet let us not be duly discouraged. There is one ever ready to say, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. A plant may be of slow growth, but if it buds at all, if it advance at all, there is something over which the husbandman watcheth. But if the minds of the saints turn not to these things, but to other interests, if they are careless respecting the fruitfulness of the garden of God, how can they expect prosperity? May we then be enabled to receive these things, not as a rebuke, but as encouragement. Let us regard them as opening up to us a path of privilege and honor. Do the tokens around us indicate that such separation as this is needed? Do the signs of this present hour, both in the church and in the world, teach us this lesson? The precious truths that we have learned from the Word of God would fail in their result if they did not lead us to desire holy Nazarite separation. I trust that God is graciously using them to this end. He expects, however, that we should consider and understand what His hand is doing, and He looks for the desires of our heart and for our energies to be with Him in it, remembering if we feel feeble, 
the graciousness of Him with whom we have to do and the fullness of grace that is towards us in Christ Jesus. We are not under law, but under grace. If our hearts understand not the desirableness of such paths, then must they be dull indeed. True, there are many discouragements, many things to deaden the heart. Yet still, if we remember that whilst there are many things that deaden, there are others which revive and stimulate and encourage. And if, in wisdom, we eschew things that ensnare and seek to cultivate habits and practices and intercourse that strengthen, we shall not be without our blessing. Oh, then, that we may be wise as to these things. And was it not joy to those faithful sons of Jonadab to hear these words of blessing pronounced over them? Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. Did not those words of blessing make their hearts thrill with thankfulness? Put yourselves forward then to the last great end, the end of manifested glory, when all faithfulness, yea, even the last service done to others in the name of Christ, will be remembered, honored, praised, even by the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. Is there any joy on earth, any honor to be compared with the joy of those who shall hear those last final words of blessing? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That joy is open to you. And even as there will be joy then, so the spirit of promise, the comforter, who always testifies according to truth, will secretly now cheer those hearts that are, through God's grace, walking in a path that will bring blessing in that day. If, then, you seek after honor then and comfort now, seek to cultivate those things in your hearts and ways that will make you more and more like this separated family. Seek to cherish them in others as well as in yourselves. And then, whatever may be appointed to you here, whether it be sunshine or storm, whether you be blighted by sorrow or measurably protected from its power, you will find a peace which is above and beyond the circumstances of earth, keeping practically your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Just listen to the Rechabites by Benjamin Will Newton. And that was a chapter from his book, Narratives from the Old Testament. It was published by Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony in the UK. 
Anyway, more from B.W. Newton on upcoming shows, especially focusing on his teachings on the end time and the millennium, which I believe you'll find very deeply feeding and enlightening and encouraging and give you faith to keep your head up high during the crazy times we're living, knowing that there's a wonderful future for this world just around the corner. And thanks so much to Jerry Palladino for the instrumentals. I'll be back next time for another Nightlight Show. Bye-bye.